Well, that's out of the, that's out of the Bible. You ever heard somebody say that? Ever seen that expression? You know, folks, we live in a, in a culture, we live in a world today in which the Bible is not considered as really a valid source of information for, for really for anything. I mean, you know, the moment you say it's out of the Bible, you're just, you know, you're disqualified. You know, the, our, the discussion just ended. I, you know, I find it amazing that, that we are so quick, that we are so able to dismiss a book to, to dismiss a body of information that has never, boy, never is a big word, isn't it? That has never been disproven. Not scientifically, not, not archaeologically, not historically, not spiritually. It has never been shown to be wrong. Now, th- there are certainly people who don't like what they hear, read, or see in the Bible, but not liking something is not disproving it. There are certainly people who would strongly disagree with something that is said or something that they see in the Bible, but, but disagreeing is not disproving. There are times when science and history have had to catch up to the Bible. You ever heard anybody say that? That science had to catch up to the Bible? You know, folks, for millennia, we ran around on this planet thinking it was flat, didn't we? That was a flat earth. Did you know the Bible never says that the earth is flat? It says it's an orb. It refers to it as a sphere, as a ball. Never says it was flat. Science had to catch up with that. That's okay. We'll wait. There's times that history has had to catch up with the Bible. You go back over the last four, five, six hundred years and historians would say, you know, you open, the, you open the Old Testament and it refers to this king and it refers to that city, but... But there's no record of that king. There's no record of that city anywhere. I mean, that just doesn't exist. I mean, well, sure, the Bible says that, but of course, we can't really trust the Bible as a, as a valid historical document. And in real history, that doesn't exist. And then we come into the 1900s, and archaeology starts to advance and really starts to unearth a lot of things. And oh, well, look at that. There's that king for the last five or 600 years we didn't think existed. There's that city, finding whole cities. Yeah, there, there it is, just like the Bible said. Folks, the Bible has never been disproven. And it's not for lack of effort. That book you hold in your hand today is the single most hated, most attacked, most scrutinized document that has ever been on this planet. Folks, if there was anything significant, you know, let me change that. If there was anything insignificant in this book that showed it to be false, that showed it to be inaccurate, it had been found, it had been proven, and the book would have had the holes poked into it. And yet here we are, and the book still stands. Still under attack, but it still stands. We continue today our series called God Questions. Last week we started looking at our our first question, and that was, does God exist And we said that, yeah, we're going to say that God exists. Our next step is going to be as if God exists. And that's a smart step. That's an intelligent step. That's what the evidence seems to suggest. Yes, it's a step of faith. You remember what we said last week? Science takes steps of faith too, don't they? Science is not just dealing with fact. They have things they can't prove at all, but they have to have a starting point. They're called presuppositions. Fancy word for faith. 
they have some faith starting points. And we said, you know what? As we weigh the evidence, it seems like the most intelligent, the smartest thing we can do is to move forward with the belief that God exists. As we start to research, as we start to answer the questions of life, like, is there an afterlife and how am I going to pay my bills this month? And in every question in between, we ought to move forward under the belief that God exists. Now, if we're going to say that God exists, the next question becomes... Has that God spoken? Has has He said anything specific? You remember, part of our evidence last week was the universe. The universe says there's a God. And and we could look at the universe and learn some things about that. He's intelligent. He's ordered. There's design. There's purpose. There's direction. We could learn that. But are there specific things that we could learn about our God? And the answer to those questions is, yes, God has spoken in the Bible. And we're going to look at today, folks, some reasons... That we can trust that the Bible is the way that God has revealed Himself. Even more so than any other book. You know, we, we live in a world that, that, you know, there's a lot of religious books, right? There's a lot of what they, I don't think there's one, but obviously many people would refer to holy books. A lot of books. Every religion claims to have a book. Every religion claims to have a, you know, special writing. But I'm going to suggest that the Bible is completely trustworthy fully sufficient for faith and life. And that because, for three reasons, it is incomparable, it is inspired, and it is inerrant. And those three things separate it from any other kind of book that is out there. We're going to look today, folks, at some information we've actually looked at before several times. Several times I've gone over this information. For some of you, obviously, it'll be new. But folks, I tell you something, this is information I think it's good to review. I think it's good to get this grounded in our life. Folks, this is our source of information. It is our source for truth. We need to have a strong, growing faith in what we hold in our hands. We also need to have an elementary ability to defend it. So I hope that this kind of helps us kind of move that direction today. So I'm saying, first of all, that that this book we hold in our hands. Is everybody holding a book in their hands? Particularly the Bible? (laughs) If you don't, we've got some under the chairs in, in front of you. Or, you know, hopefully somebody will hand it to you if it's not right in front of you. But you hold something pretty incredible, pretty special in your hands. It is absolutely incomparable. There's no book like it. For instance, did you know that this book has a beginning, a middle, and an end? And it tells one harmonious story all the way through. through. Isn't that cool? You're thinking, don't all books do that? Don't don't all books have a beginning, a middle, and an end and tell a story? Yeah, but the way this does it, really pretty unique. As a matter of fact, we call it a book, don't we? It's actually not a book. The the Bible is is a compilation of 66 books. Many of these guys, when they were writing, did not write in light of the others. They didn't know that what they were writing was going to be put into a compilation. And it was going to be kind of the next chapter, the next part of the story, if you will. Many of them didn't know that. There was no general editor that pulled it together and erased the things that didn't fit. And, you know, wrote that sentence that kind of bridged to the next one. There was none of that. 66 authors, 66 books, over 40 authors. And yet it reads like one story. And it's pretty incredible how that happens. Look at this statement up here. The Bible was written over a 1500 year, and you probably could even stretch that out 
Job is the oldest book. It may have been written as, as, as early as 1900 B.C. So you might say over a 1500 to a 2000 year time span by over 40 authors from every walk of life. Look what these guys were made up of. Kings, soldiers, peasants, philosophers, commercial fishermen, even a tax collector in the group there. Now, it, it, folks, the reason I point that out, and notice the rest of it is written in wilderness prison at times of war and peace at times of prosperity and poverty they wrote in times of great victory and joy some wrote during deep depression and loss you know folks if you come up in those things that's going to kind of slant the way you look at life isn't it i mean a king is going to look at life and relationships and economics and and people going to look at all that one way very different than probably a peasant would there's, there's gonna, if you grow up in a time of war if you grow up in a war-ravaged country, you're going to have a view of life that's probably a little bit different than somebody who grows up during times of great peace and prosperity. Very different people. Very different perspectives. And yet it reads like one story. They, come, they wrote on three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. They wrote in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And, and, and guys, obviously we all know the Bible's not just addressing one topic and we just happened to have 40 people who kind of agreed, man, they are addressing dozens and dozens and dozens of very controversial topics. I put a list there, marriage, remarriage, divorce, homosexuality, authority, parenting, character, God, life, the afterlife, and a whole bunch of others. All of these different topics, and yet page after page, chapter after chapter, book after book, it unfolds as one harmonious story. There is nothing else like that. Not another religious book, not another holy book. There's nothing like what you hold in your hands and how it came together. It's also incomparable in its historical validity. There's not another document, Christian, secular, or otherwise, on the planet that has the kind of validity, the kind of support that the Bible does. Now, what do I mean by that? I open up my Bible. It just happens to be opened up right now to Hosea. I wonder if Hosea actually wrote this. I, I, you know, when I read Hosea, did he actually, are these actually his words? Or if I, if I flip over to John, did, did John write these words? Because, you know, we don't have the actual piece of paper that Hosea wrote on. We don't have the actual piece of paper that, that John wrote on. Now, don't, don't think that says something like, oh my gosh, really? Oh, is, is that bad? No, we don't actually have the piece of paper that anything in antiquity was written on. We don't have the piece of paper that Plato wrote on or Sophocles or Aristotle or really any of the historians of that time. We don't have what they wrote on. What we have is copies. We have copies of what Hosea and John and Matthew wrote on. We have copies of what these others wrote on. So that still reads, brings up the question, well, how do I know if, if I'm just looking at a copy then how do I know it's accurate, that, that, that it was translated accurately, that it was communicated and copied over and over accurately? Well, literary scholars, not, not Christians necessarily, this isn't a Christian exercise, uh, literary scholars came up with a way of kind of measuring how certain we can be that we hold what that guy wrote. And they measure the, the number of copies, the agreement between those copies. If you have very few copies and they don't agree, then you don't know what their source was because they're writing all different things. And, and so they're looking at agreement. They're looking at the number of copies. They're looking at when it was originally written and how long was it before the first copies started showing up. Let me show you how the Bible compares to writings in antiquity. Look at this chart here. 
These two works right here are two of the top five. Five of the, the most valid sources in human history. I'm talking about the whole thing. Here's the two of the top five. As a matter of fact, Homer's Iliad is considered the most valid document that we have in human history. Homer's Iliad was written in 800 B.C. Our earliest copy is 400 B.C. Simple math, 400 year time difference. And there's 643 copies. Now that's not saying all 643 copies are at 400 B.C. It's saying the earliest of the 643 copies was around 400 B.C. That is considered the most valid document that we have on the planet. Now, that's number one. I forgot what place uh, the annals was in, but it's in the top five. I think it's like three or four. But look at the drop. You go from a 400-year time span to a 1,000-year time span. You go from 643 copies to 20 copies. Now, the question is, well, how does the New Testament rate in this? Remember what we're saying is it's incomparable. Look at this. The New Testament was written A.D. 50 to 100. To be exact, the first book written in the New Testament was Galatians. It was written in 49 A.D. Last book written was Revelation, written in 95 A.D. Our earliest fragments, and by fragments, you know, they get things like the Dead Sea Scrolls and they, they find these things. And a, and a fragment, folks, they might, might be a page. It might be something this big and it has a verse on it. So it can be really small. We have fragments appearing as early as 114. And you know what's really cool? When you interpret that in fragment, it says the exact same thing that you're holding in your hand. Identical, word for word, 114 AD. We have entire uh, New Testament books Copies appearing by 200. By 250, we have almost all the New Testament. And we have complete sets of the New Testament that date back to 325. So, what's the time span? 50 to 225 years. Remember, the best the world had to offer. Oh, Homer's Iliad was what? 400. We're talking 50 to 225. Homer had 643 copies. New Testament, 5,366. Is that fair to say that there's no comparison? Would, would that work there? Have I left y'all? Are you still with me? Going right over the top of your heads with this? It, it, folks, it, you can't compare. Now, I didn't, I didn't uh, put the Old Testament up there, folks, but it is, it is the, uh, the same in, in the kind of time span. A little bit different in the copies. The Old Testament, we have like twenty to 25,000 copies uh, of fragments, books, cassettes of the Old Testament. Folks, the Bible is the single most valid historical document we have on the planet, and there is no second place. Homer's not even in the same realm as the New Testament. So, the book you hold in your hand is absolutely incomparable to any other kind of document that we have out there. It's also inspired. The Bible is inspired. Now, what do we mean by that? We use that word a lot. We say something or someone is inspired. You know, usually I say oh, that artwork or that, that poem or that song inspires me. Of course, so many people, you know, they leave this property every day saying, that, you know, that pastor inspires me so much. You know, now what do we mean by that word? We mean that moves us, right? That moved me. That gave me a warm fuzzy. It made my liver quiver. You know, it just, it did it for me, right? That has nothing to do with that. This is not about whether when you read this, it moves you or not, or you get kind of an emotional jolt. That's not what inspiration means. What does it mean? Well, let's look and see. Turn with me to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Kind of in the back half of your Old Testament. Go past uh, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians. You'll hit a couple of Thessalonians and then Timothy. 2 Timothy. You get to Hebrews, you've gone too far. 
2 Timothy 3.16. By the way, you remember a couple of weeks ago we were talking about memorizing one verse a month? Oh, no, just forget it now. Golly, that was... Me and my dog are doing that, I guess. Okay, uh, if you were memorizing a verse a month, this would be a good one. This is a good verse. This is a very foundational verse to explaining this thing you hold in your hand. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now this verse teaches a lot. I'm going to point out just three claims, three things this verse says. First of all, it says all Scripture... Old Testament, New Testament, Genesis to Revelation, prophecy to history, life to science, everything the Bible speaks to is inspired. The entire Bible is God-breathed. And folks, that word right there, God-breathed, is the actual translation for the word inspiration. If your translation says it's inspired, it means that it's literally God-breathed. In other words, inspiration here means these words, the chapters, the books... The whole, it originated from God's mouth. It originated from His heart and mind. What I am looking at did not start with men, but it started with God. That's what inspiration, that's what the Bible is claiming of itself. That it is inspired. And it says the entire Bible is profitable. Now that's the purpose. What, what's the purpose of God originating these words? Is that it be profitable to you and me. That it train us. That it rebuke us. Hey, you're out of line. Back to the left, back to the right, move forward. That's what the Bible does, doesn't it? It corrects us, it trains us, it trains us there in how to be right with God, trains us in how to be right with others. So the Bible, all of the Bible, that's the purpose of inspiration, is our prophet. And it says every bit of it, every single word. Now, I think as we read that, our tendency is to think that some of the Bible is more inspired than others. No, that's not true. It's all equally inspired. Now, some might seem more relevant. I mean, honestly, if somebody came to me and said, man, I'm trying to, to start reading the Bible. I'm, I'm trying to start learning about the claims of Christ or to, to know God. Where would I start? I'd probably send them to the Gospel of John before I'd send them to Leviticus. I mean, you know, Leviticus, you all remember reading Leviticus? Yeah, some of you read it in 1987, whether you wanted to or not, Right. You know, that's the book we're not going to go to. Probably the Old Testament has a lot of those. But you know what, folks? Leviticus is, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, absolutely profitable to our lives. If you go and open up Leviticus, you read page after page after page of almost mind-numbing rules about what's clean and what's unclean. Well, you know what? Jesus has taken care of that for me, so that doesn't seem like as big an issue. And so I say, I don't need this. Or, or there's just page after page, chapter after chapter of all these details on the animal sacrifices and how you perform those sacrifices and, and when they're to be done. Well, Jesus is the one sacrifice for all. We don't, we don't perform those sacrifices anymore. We don't live under that sacrificial system anymore. So there again, we say, well, I, you know, I don't need that. And that's why we tend to probably read through that and then pretty quickly, well, this is not for us today. Folks, let me tell you something. I, I really think one of the most profound things you could do this year is spend a lot of time in the book of Leviticus. Because you know what? As you read it over and over and over, you start to realize, hey, wait a minute. God is really detailed. 
Holiness is really detailed. You think that might be important in my life? You know, I think as we think about being holy and praying about being holy and trying to be holy, I'm kind of holy. You know, kind of, sort of. Yeah, I'm trying. Folks, holiness is not a kind of, sort of thing. Holiness is not little bit, yeah, like, almost there. Man, you look at that, you realize holiness is detailed. God is very detailed. We're kind of hoping, aren't some of us kind of hoping he's not that detailed? That he's grading on this big, massive, giant curve? You know, that he really doesn't see? Folks, I need a book like Leviticus to shake me out of that false thinking. You know, all across the world today, preachers are saying, come to Jesus. He died for your sins. He's a sacrifice for you. His blood washed you clean. You heard those phrases? Yeah, we hear them all the time. Remember, we're quite used to hearing that. Can you imagine? Do you remember what it's like to hear it for the first time? Because if you stop and think, it's really kind of weird. Blood is cleaning me? I don't get it. <laughs> you know, somebody, why does somebody have to die for me? Why does somebody dying 2,000 years ago on a cross have some kind of impact on my life? Folks, it's the book of Leviticus that introduces how God uses blood, looks at blood and its power. It's the book of Leviticus through the entire sacrificial system that explains why there was a cross. Do you realize that as God was breathing out these words that these men were writing about the sacrificial system and the blood the whole time God knew and it will be ultimately my son. Oh, folks, there's great profit in understanding every bit of Scripture. It's all there for you. It's inspired. Let's look at one more verse about inspiration. Our memory verse for February, we'll say, right? <laughs> yeah, okay. Second uh, Peter 1.21. Go to the right. Go past Hebrews and, and James and you'll come to Peter. First and second Peter. Look at chapter 1, verse 21. 2 Peter 1, verse 21. Wait till the shuffling is done. We'll know most of us are there. 2 Peter 1, 21, it says, Because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. You know, the words I just read were not the will of Peter. Peter didn't say, boy, you know what? I really need to tell people something. Didn't come from Peter. No prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, moved by the Holy Spirit, men spoke from God. Now, what does that mean? Well, that's a cool verb right there. Moved by. Your translation may say carried by the Holy Spirit. We see that same verb used in Acts chapter 27, verse 15. You don't have to turn there, but if you did, Paul has been arrested and he's being transferred from Jerusalem to Rome. And they're doing that by sea. And they're out on the sea. And a big, huge, great storm hits the boat. Hits the ship that they're in. The, uh, the sailors are fighting it. They're trying to steer the ship. The storm is just too overwhelming. The wind is too strong. And finally it says, basically, the soldiers let go. And they let the storm move them along. They let the storm carry them along. Same verb. Now, now what, what kind of connection can we see there when, when the sailor said we can't fight this storm does that mean they said so we might as well go down in the hole of the ship and take a nap no I'm guessing not I'm guessing they were still up on deck they're still working they're still holding the ship together they're trying to to move it but there is a greater force they can't resist the force they're not going to fight the force they're going to work in concert with the greater force well folks that's true of scripture the Holy Spirit moved these men along. The Holy Spirit was the greater force. That does not mean that the writers were taking mindless dictation. 
It, it doesn't mean they were just zombies half asleep and God was speaking and they were just writing words. Man, when you read these books, you see human personality. You see their individual writing styles. You see their perspective. Humanity comes through. Humanity is still at work. But the greater force that produced the word, that produced the book, that produced all that we have here was the Holy Spirit. Folks, the book you're holding is God's word. From his heart, from his mind, breathed out by him, his Holy Spirit moved along, protected it, so that here we are 2,000 years later, and we are reading what God intended us to read on each and every subject, each and every issue that we read when we come to that. So it is incomparable, it is inspired, and it is inerrant. The Bible is inerrant. It is without error. It is without deceit. It is without fault. It also doesn't have an expiration date. It, it, it doesn't run out of good. It doesn't come to a place where it needs to be upgraded, where it needs to be changed. You know, folks, you realize there's nothing, you don't, there's nothing like on the planet that you can hold in your hands like this. I mean, we've made some great things on this planet. We've made some almost perfect-like things, haven't we? I mean, they're great right up to the point they break. They're great right up to the point they really don't work. They're great until they need an upgrade. And then you need a new driver because they don't tell you that you need a new driver with the upgrade. And then you've got to reboot the whole system unless, of course, you hold a Mac. I don't want to talk about Macs and PCs. But folks, you realize there's nothing on this planet that's imperfect, that's perfect, that doesn't have to change, that doesn't have to evolve, that doesn't have to get an upgrade except this book right here. It is inerrant. It is without error. Now, I said a moment ago, it's a God book. God breathed, but through men. Now, does the adding of humanity to this book introduce the possibility of error? It's a fair question. Okay, it's God's word. It, you know, he was communicating it, but, but still it came through people. So isn't there the possibility of, of error there? And the answer is no. And we really, we look at the Bible the same way we do Jesus. Now, this isn't in the house, in the, inside the family argument. It's probably not going to mean a whole lot to somebody out there. But, but we believe Jesus to be fully God and fully man, correct? We looked at some of that evidence last week or kind of got started in that kind of thing. Jesus had all knowledge. He had all power. He conquered the grave. But to his deity was added humanity. He was 100% human. He got tired. He ate. got hungry. had got thirsty. He bled. He showed a range of human emotions. So in Jesus, we have the God-man. In the Bible, we have the God-man. Jesus is the living word or the living revelation of God. The Bible is the written word or the written revelation of God. All God's word, all God's thought, all God's intent communicated through 100% man and that did not force error. You remember last week I made the comment that there is nothing in science that demands we come to the conclusion there is no God. No, rather, man with a desire to dismiss God approached science and said, can we use this as a way, can we come up with an equation for life without including God? Well, the same is true of the Bible. There's nothing in this book that as you read through it demands, well, gosh, this thing is just fraught with error and mistakes and, and, it, and it contradicts itself and it just goes in wrong. There's nothing that demands you come to that conclusion. No, rather, people approached it saying, we've got to find errors in this. We, we've got to dismiss it. Now, why do we have to bring it down from a God book and just make it a man book? 
Because if it's just a man book, I can ignore it, can I? But if it's a God book, a little bit difficult thing to ignore. But there's no errors in here that demand that. There are things that people point to as errors uh, that, are, that are not really errors. You know, you've got, uh, as a matter of fact, just talked to, we just sang a song, talked about the jealousy of God. Now, all through the Bible, there's a sin to be jealous, isn't it? It says, we're not to be jealous. And then it turns around and says, God's jealous. Ah, look, there's a contradiction. No, God's perfect. And his jealousy is communicated in perfection. He's jealous for what is true and for what is right. Nothing like when we're jealous. Okay, so that's not a, that's not a contradiction. Now, yeah, you put those two sentences on a page, you go, oh, yeah, that's look like a, that does look like a contradiction. Yeah, there are some things that take some effort to interpret. There are some things that take some effort to understand. That's not an error. Another one, then I'm using some easy ones. There's some more difficult ones. But another one that people point to as an error in the Bible is the gospel accounts of the resurrection. They, they say the disciples went to the tomb. One gospel account says they went to the tomb and, and there was one angel there. And, and then another gospel account says there was two angels there. Ah, look, a mistake. One says one, one says two. They need, they need to clean that up. You know, folks, right, right there actually is a good point. If there was a general editor... If this was just a man document, propaganda for promoting a religion, we probably would clean that up, wouldn't we? <laughs> we, go, we can't have it saying one angel in one place and, in, and two angels in another place. We need to fix that. No, but see, God's Holy Spirit protected us from doing that. That's what God intended. Well, why would God intend one gospel to say one thing and the other to say the other? It's called eyewitness accounts. It gives a full story. Police officers do it every day. They go to a crime scene investigation. What do they want? They want as many eyewitnesses as they can get. Because all the eyewitnesses give a full account. You say, well, but why still one and two? Well, maybe the writer of the one gospel that said one was referring to the one angel who spoke. Because one angel spoke. And that's what he wrote. He's referring to the one angel who spoke. The other gospel account was just referring to the two angels that he saw. And you put both accounts together. And what does God want us to have? God wants us to have the whole story. He wants us to have the coal account. So he allows both. You say, gosh, there's a lot of repetition. Yeah, a lot of eyewitness accounts. Want to make sure you see the whole thing. So there's no errors in that. Again, we approach Scripture with that. Another way people approach Scripture is they, uh, and believers do this, I would call them our more liberal brethren. Maybe that's not a fair word to say. They don't believe the Bible anyway. And, uh, and, and they really want the world to believe they're smart. I, I, I really, you know, remember what I said last week? We're kind of, kind of fearful to go into the marketplace and say God created the world in six days or we believe that. And we, well, we sound stupid. We sound stupid out in the marketplace. Well, we've got people proclaiming Christianity who say, you know, I, I, I want to I sound smart. I want to sound, I want the world to think I'm smart. And, and, and so what I want to do is I want to try to find a way that, that we can accept out there everything in science. But then wait a minute. There's nothing that demands we come to the truth of evolution because darn, evolution's not the truth. It's a theory. It's an idea about how things might have gotten here without a God. And yet we have Christians who think we, we've, we've got to come to that conclusion. We've got to get to that so the world thinks our, we're smart. And so then what they'll say You'll, you'll see this in Christianity. They'll say, well, the Bible is inerrant as it relates to spiritual issues. 
as it relates to religious, because that's, that's why we read the Bible, right? I'm not, I'm not opening the Bible to learn how to fix a broken leg. I'm not opening the Bible to, to learn about biology. I'm opening the Bible to learn about, you know, God and loving God and loving others. And so when the Bible's talking about spiritual stuff, it's inerrant. But, but life and science and history, and, you know, not necessarily there. Folks, that's just catering to the world. They're showing they didn't believe it to begin with because there's nothing in here that demands that I come to that conclusion. Listen, to attack the inerrancy of Scripture is to attack uh, the authority of the Father who originated or the authenticity of the Father who originated it, the authority of the Son who affirmed it, the activity of the Holy Spirit that inspired it, the stability of the church that is built on it. We must hold to an inerrant book. You can't start poking a few holes into it. It's either all true or you might as well not need any of it. The Bible doesn't give you a system or the authority to start picking out what's good and what's not good. What we can hold on to and what we can not hold on to. It's either all there or it's none there. Three reasons I believe the Bible to be true. Three reasons it is unlike. And for me, I'm not saying for you, three reasons for me, I really don't need to look at all the other books out there. By the way, I have. But I really don't need to look at the Quran or, or the variety of spiritual writings out there, the writings of Jesus, because they're not incomparable. They're not inspired and they're not inerrant. Let me give you even two easier ones. I'm not starting a whole new sermon. Don't get scared. Two real quick ones. I believe the Bible because Jesus believed it. Now, you've got to go back and pick up some of the argument last week if you're going to use that argument. You know, folks, it takes faith. But the evidence actually suggests the guy was all-powerful, the guy had all knowledge, and that he conquered the grave. And if that is true of him, then that means what he said has higher and greater value, doesn't it? Well, guess what? Jesus affirmed a six-day creation. Jesus affirmed the historical figures of Adam and Eve. Not, not a myth, not a way of, you know, communicating a beginning. Jesus affirmed the story of Jonah and the great fish. Jesus quoted most of the Old Testament at one point or another from almost every book. Jesus affirmed the Bible. He believed it. What choice do I have but to believe it? Second reason I believe the Bible is, my gosh, that thing tells the future and it happens every single time. You know, folks, if I said, let me tell you some big thing that's going to happen, and it's going to happen in July of 2011, and then that day comes and it doesn't happen, you know, we're just all going to pretend like I didn't say it, right? I just won't bring that up. And maybe some of y'all will be gracious and forget that with me. But you know, if I do that like two or three or four or a dozen times, start saying, here's the future, here's what's going to happen, and it keeps not happening, I'm going to go on a limb and say attendance is going to start to drop. I'm going on a limb and say, some of y'all are going to start to think I'm crazy. I don't know what that guy's saying up there. I mean, you kind of go out on the edge when you tell the future, right? And the Bible does it over and over and over and over and over. And I'm not talking about that ridiculous, silly Nostradamus type stuff where you make a prediction that's you know, so big that 400 events qualify for it. By the way, even in his broad things, he's almost never right. I'm talking about naming cities. I'm talking about naming kings that are not born. Well, yeah, but the Jews could have come back later and, you know, renamed that king or, or made that king be that name so that it would fulfill that event. Well, gosh, what if the Bible told the future about a foreign king, an enemy king? Name the name of an enemy king before he was born, the king that would send Judah back. Well, that'd be something, wouldn't it? Well, it did. 
It names names, it names dates, it tells the number of years things are going to happen, it talks about cities over and over and over, very, very specific events. And do you realize if just once it misses, we've got a chance to say, oh gosh, what, what was happening there? Two or three times? You know, doesn't miss one time. Not once. That, how can you ignore that evidence? You know what that means, folks? This book that we hold here? It's God's Word. Everything we've just talked about today is not for neat Bible trivia. It's not to go, ooh, ah, or oh gosh, I didn't know that. Or that's interesting. No, it's to confirm, it's to affirm in our faith that we hold the very Word of God. It's to motivate us to be willing to learn more so we can stand out there in the world and explain to others what we hold in our hand and the evidence that surround us. That book by your night table. That book on your coffee table. Do you read it and try to make it conform to your life? Or do you read this book and say, my life must conform to it? It is the Word of God. There's nothing you hold in your hands like it. We must stand for it. We must read it, study it, memorize it, and proclaim it to the world. It is the source of truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for not leaving it up to us to figure out eternity. To figure out a, a God for not leaving it up to us to figure out all kinds of things. You came and you revealed. You showed us who you were. You created this whole concept of a husband and a wife. Gave all the instruction to make that relationship work. You told us we're not going to always get along. We're going to bump into each other and it's going to sting sometimes. And you told us how to fix it. You, you told us ways that work every single time. They never fail. You called us to faith, but you gave us evidence. You never called us to be stupid. You never said faith was blind. God, you've told us everything we need to know for faith and life. God, why we're so grateful for this incredibly special book you've put in our hands. Maybe some of us in here need to confess how little attention we give to it. Maybe we need to, to confess how many things we're doing, decisions we're making, and we're not, we're not going there to learn. We're not trying to discover what Your Word has said about any and every decision we're making. Maybe, God, we're going to Your Word, we're opening it up, and we really are. We're trying to make Your Word fit our life. We're trying to make Your Word fit our culture so... Nobody will laugh at us or think we're stupid. God, I would pray that we could come to this moment and all across this room, every single one of us could come to a place where we would say, God, I'm going to read your word. Would you give me the faith? Would you give me the courage? Would you give me the wisdom to conform my life to what it says and no longer try to conform your word to me? I need your help in doing that, Lord. I'm weak. 
I'm lazy. I sin. So God, may I pick up this book. And would you use it what you meant to use it for, to profit my life, to train me to be right with you. Everybody in this room, everybody in this world. Thank you for this great treasure. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.